0: Teenagers and young adults account for 50% of the 20 million cases of sexually transmitted infections every year. Doctors are hearing repeatedly from their patients, quote, this can't be happening to me, unquote. Is it time to debunk the myth that you can't catch STI if you choose the right partner? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And with me today is Dr. Jill Grimes who practices in the Urgent Care Department of the University of Texas at Austin's University Health Service, and the author of Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STI. Thank you very much, doctor, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: To begin with, what prompted you to write this particular book?
1: Well, exactly what you were talking about, that we have so many patients who look at us in shock when we diagnose them with a sexually transmitted infection and they're like, how could this happen to me? And that, I've been in private practice for just short of 20 years in Austin, um, in addition to working over at the University of Texas. And it really surprised me that my, frankly, very uh, well-educated, affluent population was still so surprised when I was diagnosing them. And I realized... Clearly, how we're teaching about sexually transmitted infections was not effective. So I wanted to look for a different way to share that information that would be more impactful. And at the same time, many of my patients were very engaged in the different medical dramas on TV, like Grey's Anatomy or ER, and they certainly could remember all of those stories and even ask me questions about them. So I thought, well, hey, what if we shared stories? and initially i was actually just going to write a few pamphlets for my waiting room but they the stories were very effective and the short version is we decided to make a collection of those stories
0: since you've just touched on it before we get into the actual scientific approach of what the symptoms may be uh how to recognize them treatment prevention you you touched on something uh, that i'm very interested in and that's the art of storytelling and that narratives are having kind of a rebirth, not only in our society through things like StoryCorps, but actually in medical school, they're getting back to narratives. We've been kind of heavy on the evidence-based case presentation, especially with the electronic medical record. And now you present these stories, uh, which are a, a compilation of your patients. They're not an exact patient, but they come across so strongly. What would you say about using narratives the way you're using it and the impact it's had on your patients and maybe young doctors who are listening to this show?
1: Well, I have to say the feedback that I have had has just been tremendous, particularly my the first edition of my book has been used in high school setting in San Antonio, Texas, in nine different high schools for, I guess, five years now. And the teachers and the students love it because they're it's interesting. It's not boring. The statistics don't work. In terms of teaching young doctors and medical students, it's we're all engaged in, in the story, in the human story. And when we've got a name and a, a face, at least a face in our mind to put with a disease, we remember it so much more. I'm, I'm sure you have, when someone, particularly a, maybe a less frequent disease, a particular cancer or something, I bet you can immediately think of a patient that really brought that home to you and and taught you a lot about that disease.
0: Yeah, and there's no question that my wife would always, who's not a physician, she's a psychologist, would remark, how do you remember those facts? How do you remember it? Well, it isn't necessarily the facts of the illness. It's the patient's personality, how he presented it, how he made connections, his support group. Those things really even at my age, leave a lasting impression. And I think they're being ignored. And, and your book is a perfect example of reading. You have 11 chapters, I might say, uh, of 11 different kinds of events, and that doesn't even include Zika, but uh, 11 different things. And you, you do the unique thing, I think, of presenting it both from the male gender and the female gender, two different stories, same disease. How did you arrive at that idea?
1: Well, it's kind of funny, being a practicing physician who knew nothing about the publishing world on the front end of all of this, I had in my mind exactly what I wanted to do I wanted it to I wanted this book to be for adolescents. I wanted it to be short, hundred pages, ten chapters, ten pages each. Why? Because that was easy math, and that was just sort of what I had in my head but the part of the reason that there uh, is is you know twice that many chapters or twice that many perspective was because of the publisher because they said no you can't publish a book that's only 100 pages it has to be longer so that was a very artificial thing but it turned out that it's I'm so pleased that that I ended up doing it from each perspective because not only does that help the reader say that they're female and they're reading about the female experience it helps helps them know what to expect in the exam room what what is that What is that going to be like? What's that conversation going to be like? And to really identify with that character. But also, particularly because a lot of these diseases are silent, it it takes some of the blame away when you start looking at a disease from the opposite gender's perspective or from, from a different partner's perspective, and so I've had a lot of feedback from young people that they really liked. They didn't think that they would be interested in reading the opposite gender, but they were almost more interested in that, particularly the guys. Again, I, I did a lot of things to really make this a personal connection with frankly the population that I treat, which reflects why there's there's access to care. One of the questions you asked me ahead of time was, you know, why, why? how is it that everyone's able to get care? And that's because this this particular book, my target market, was kind of young, educated people who didn't think that their kind of people caught these diseases. So, for example, the names that I used in both editions, I just subtracted 18 years and went to the most popular baby names from 18 years ago because I want the people reading this who are ages I mean it, it it extends beyond adolescence, but the primary focus uh, audience initially is that those people, and I want them to see their names and their friends' names in the book so that they can again pull this in and understand this is their kind of people. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It does as i as I read the book, I thought about man plans and God laughs and and uh, you you think you're making plans, but you're not making educated plans. Were there common themes in the various illnesses and presentations that you incurred?
1: Yes. And the the common themes are you don't have to be super sexually active to catch a disease and, and why that is. How you can have been with one person who you carefully chose, but if that person had, had prior partners, you could... You could be exposed to more than that one person. So that's one kind of overriding theme. Another theme is that very, very frequently, as as we as physicians all know, these diseases are silent. But just because they're silent in one person doesn't mean that they stay silent in the next person that is infected with them. And so um, teaching about that and understanding that there's not direct finger pointing, I, I have symptoms. I must have gotten it from you, you know, you must have had symptoms therefore you must have lied and so kind of trying to debunk that myth. And then the other the, frankly the primary myth that I saw and was trying to address when I initially started tackling this problem was the myth that you can only pass on disease through traditional intercourse. There was there's a big disconnect especially it seems to me in our younger people today about oral sex and thinking that that's, you know, that's been advertised as safe sex uh, because you can't get pregnant, but you certainly can pass disease. And something I saw in my practice, private practice, all the time was genital herpes from oral sex.
0: So you can make a distinction, and I think you do in the book, the use of condoms does protect you from some diseases that are spread through semen. But there's also, uh, at least four, that I can think of that you are spread, spread through direct contact. So although high risk not using condoms is a significant factor, as you mentioned, it isn't the only factor.
1: Right. And I think our generation, um, speaking for myself at age 50, I think we've done a little bit of disservice to younger generations in that you know we kind of grew up in the era of HIV and certainly condoms have just dramatically decreased the transmission of HIV and condoms work fantastically well to prevent transmission like you said of of HIV additionally gonorrhea chlamydia and trichomonas which are all transmitted by semen by body fluids but I sort of joke with students when I'm talking with them and say until a condom looks like a boy boxer shorts it doesn't cover all the areas where you can potentially shed disease, such as HPV or herpes, because we know that those can be transmitted by direct skin-to-skin contact, as well as, of course, pubic lice and syphilis and, and others. But, but condoms are great. The message is not at all to decrease condom usage. The message is that just people need to wear, be aware that condoms do not make them bulletproof, and condoms need to be used for all acts of sexual intimacy, especially oral sex. Or a barrier method if, it's, if you're talking about a female.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reach MD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickernan. Joining us today is Dr. Jill Grimes, author of the book Seductive Delusions How Everyday People Catch STI. I'm glad you mentioned condoms. A recent survey that was published in the New York Times from Johns Hopkins tried to identify high risk males and females, especially females who are high risk had a four times greater chance of getting STI than a low risk. And the biggest factors appeared to be the use of condoms and multiple partners. Could you comment on that?
1: Right. Well, we we all know that those are you know traditional risk factors. And clearly, the more partners you have, the higher your risk is. And it's important for educators to emphasize that you're, you're Exposure is not just your immediate partner, it's anyone that that partner has been with. So so it, it doesn't surprise me that the higher risk factors in that survey, that the higher chance the woman had a sexually transmitted infection. What was a little surprising in that survey is that the guys with higher risk uh, numbers by that survey, meaning that they were not using condoms or they had multiple partners, or they had partners with known sexually transmitted infections, um, their, their numbers didn't seem to correlate quite as much with actually catching a sexually transmitted infection. So I, I, think, I think that those types of surveys are helpful, but I also think they're misleading because a big part of my message is that these, the diseases are silent and it's not, it's not just the high-risk groups that have them. And particularly with chlamydia, we we want to identify that early so that we can get it identified and absolutely cured with antibiotics before it's, it's silently causing problems that can actually end up leading to infertility. So I, I applaud the efforts of looking for more screening tools. We, we have limited resources. We, we can't, we don't have the monies to test and access, I guess, to te- test everyone. However, the CDC is really trying to give the opposite message that, for example, we need to test everybody for HIV one time regardless of their known or believed risk factors because we have to start discovering these and identifying these diseases and people who don't believe that they have risk
0: factors. In your book, your patients have access. They have support. They have money for copay. They're intelligent. They will return. What about the vast group of people in our country and our part of a society that aren't as privileged and certainly will be getting these same diseases?
1: Exactly. And if I had the answer for that, I think I might be the next uh, presidential candidate, which perhaps we might want.
0: Careful. Careful. Don't go there. (laughs) I don't know if you want to do that, but go ahead.
1: Sorry. (laughs) Um, In in all sincerity, that is a huge problem, and our public clinic systems are doing their best to increase access to care for testing. Um, a lot of these issues are in our young people who are, as you mentioned at the beginning, getting over half of these 20 million infections that were, are being diagnosed per year. And part of the question of access has to do with with age and can they um, – you know, if you're younger than 18, what what's the issue there? In the state of Texas, if you're under the age of 18, you have the right to be seen, tested, and treated for sexually transmitted infections. And um, I know that that's at the state level. I believe most states are in, on board with that, but I I don't know for certain that that's all of them. But we certainly need to be getting the knowledge out there that people need to be tested and increasing our services to that population.
0: Yeah, they're they're an emancipated adult. Would you care to comment just on the job or the function that Planned Parenthood does meeting this particular need in our health system?
1: I think that Planned Parenthood is a good example of affordable health care, particularly, obviously, gynecological care for many people. In
0: the 80s, I remember how difficult it was for people who were HIV positive or even had AIDS to disclose to their partner or to their family. It was a major issue. Uh, As our society has changed, it has become much easier to disclose. But so many of these young people have a real problem, I would imagine, disclosing to their partners and then to their family. But this stands in the way of of good health care. What do you tell them? How do you get them to, so to speak, come out with their diagnosis so that they can, one, get treatment and also protect their their
1: partners. HIV is particularly a difficult issue because of all the societal implications that go along with that diagnosis. One of the things many people don't realize is that you can actually be held liable legally for transmitting a sexually transmittable infection, including HIV. In fact, in the state of Texas, and 37 states currently have criminal prosecution like this, if you know you have HIV and you do not disclose that to a sexual partner before you are it, you can be charged with criminal felony, actually. It's considered assault with a deadly weapon. But additionally, there are certainly civil lawsuits as well, all determined at the state level, and there have been very many successful lawsuits for other diseases such as herpes and HPV transmission.
0: I can't leave this subject without, uh, although your age group is different than the one that I took care of, being an internist, but studies are showing now that the rise in STI is certainly dramatic in middle-aged people, 45 to 65. Yes. They're beginning to look at, is this due to divorce? Is it due to online dating? Is it because of... Uh, Associated reduced use of condoms because of menopause. Would you care to comment? Because, you know, we've concentrated, and your book is, you know, in your book you say this is a good book for boys, girls, parents, and teachers. There's another audience out there. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, we've actually talked about should, should the book
1: be rewritten with just a more mature set of Of um, stars of each chapter, and I'll tell you, a lot of who I've had the most positive feedback on this book has been from my friends and coworkers who have were in a marriage uh, for a long time and they are new. They are divorced, and they're newly dating, and they have said, oh my gosh, I didn't even know half of these diseases existed. And they, they, it's a whole different world, and this is a great way for them to learn about that information. There's so many factors that go into it. One is, of course, what you hit on already, that if the woman is menopausal, she's not going to be able to get pregnant. And again, our generation tends to think more, well, if I can't get pregnant, I don't need condoms but because that's the whole safe sex thing. Well, no, no, no. You absolutely can be transmitting disease and you still need condoms. But then we have the issue with males of erectile dysfunction. And a lot of them are reluctant to use condoms because they feel it decreases their sensation and it may make their ED more challenging. So you've got kind of a double whammy there, particularly in the older generations. So there is a lot of need for sex education older, more mature, I'm not sure what the right politically correct word is here, but for people my age and older, as they re-enter the dating world and their sexual intimacy.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like this is a book that you can leave in examining rooms so that your patients can browse and become informed. So I think that uh, you're responding to my question about the seniors. I got, I'm one of them. Uh, and how we can get the message out to a much larger audience. Thank you again for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.